Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. Uh, My name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to 2 Corinthians 3. That's where we'll be uh, this morning. I'm going to pray for us and then jump into that text. Let us pray. Father, we we trust that when we open your word, you will will do the work as as we speak, as we seek to learn and hear from you. Um, so I pray. I, I prepared some words, but, but Father, really, I, just, I want people to, to know and love you more. And so may my words move to that end, I pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I will never be able to. Uh, those are words that sometimes when we speak them, we just need to be pushed a little bit. At some point in my schooling education, I thought to myself, I will never be able to read a book without pictures. This needed a little bit of pushing. Uh, the first time I sat down at a drum set and thought about how do I get my two hands and my two feet to play something in rhythm, I thought I'll never be able to do this. I just needed a, a little bit of push, uh, being pushed to do that. So there's some things we think we can't do. We actually can do. We just need to be pushed. But there are other things that we think we can't do, and it's just reality. You can't do it. For example, I will never dunk a basketball. For whatever reason, the way God has chosen to make Spanbergs, uh, like the propulsion you need, like the torque, the airlift, it's just not happening for me. My, this hand will never get to a 10-foot goal unless someone is lifting me to get to the 10-foot goal. I will never dunk a basketball. So there's some things we, we can't do. There's some things we just need to be pushed. Uh, and so we're, we're coming to the end of our series, The Easy Yoke. We've got one week left after this. But the series we've been in, the, the idea has really been that the goal of the Christian life is that one day you become someone who will easily, naturally, routinely do what Jesus would do if, if he were you. Or to put it another way, there is nothing Jesus said that you cannot do. No commands he gave that you are not capable of doing. And maybe you hear that and think, oh man, that's, that's a little overwhelming. You think about some of Jesus' teachings. To bless your enemies. That you can become the kind of person who has a heart of blessing to those who have done harm to you, who have cursed you. Jesus says you can become the kind of person who's free of anger. It doesn't respond in reactivity or bitterness towards the people around you. Jesus says you can become the kind of person who's free of the love of money, who lives a life of radical generosity, no anxiety about where your next meal is coming from because the Father has you. And all of that can feel very overwhelming. And maybe you're thinking, especially if you're like me, you got young kids. Like, dude, I'm just glad my, my kids are wearing pants today. Like being free of anger, like everyone's got pants on, we're winning, right? Like that's, that feels like a pretty high bar. 
And I just want to say, I love this line from um, Dallas Willard, where he says, we occasionally need to be reminded, or we occasionally need to remind ourselves that there isn't a single thing Jesus said that we cannot do. There isn't a single thing that we can do on our own, but we are not on our own. The Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The Holy Spirit. What the Spirit does, why that changes us, and then three postures of a Spirit-led life. So first, what does the Spirit do? Now, the Spirit does a lot of things, but we're going to focus on what Paul references here in 2 Corinthians 3. And in the text, Paul goes back to an Old Testament story about Moses. And that story is depicted in the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston as Moses. You just look at that picture and you look at that beard and you think, that guy meets with God. Right, and so and when you read Exodus, like Moses meets with God and he comes down off the mountain and his, like his face is, is, is lit. It's glowing. And understandably that freaked people out. And so like Moses put a veil over your face, a little too intense. And so he put a veil over his face until the glow went away and then he removed the, the veil. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3 is, hey, like that's great, but you have the Spirit, and the Spirit is better. Because you don't need the veil any longer. And so let's just read into what Paul says again. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so Paul is saying, in the new covenant with Jesus, like you live in the, in the presence of, of God by the Spirit. There's no veil. You live right into the presence. You don't need to cover that. And then he goes on, verse 18, you have, you have freedom. And what's that freedom for? Well, verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The Spirit enables you to behold the glory of God, to draw you into fellowship with God, and that changes us. And Paul says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit does this changing work in us. So the Spirit draws us into fellowship with the Father, We behold his glory, and that leads into transforming work in our hearts and lives. And so let's let's make this practical. What does that look like on the ground? What does that mean? Well, another place Paul impacts us in a little bit of a different way is in Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7. And Paul writes there, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, there's, there's one thing I have to point out. When Paul says son, he's actually referring to men and women. Uh, in that day, only sons could be heirs of their father. So when, when Paul's talking about the Spirit makes us an heir, he's saying men and women are both heirs uh, through the work of Jesus to the Father's inheritance. That's why he calls us all son, just like 
There's other places in the Bible where we're all called the bride of Christ. Men are a bride, women can be sons. It's a metaphor. Don't take it too far. Um, But the Spirit, ultimately, what the Spirit enables us to do is to cry out, Abba, Father. And I think that's important. Not say, Abba, Father, but cry out, Abba, Father. What's the difference between saying something and crying out something? Well, the best uh, thing I could think of to explain that was back in Kansas City, when I uh, came home from work one day, uh, it was a warm uh, day, so we had the windows open, uh, doors open, but our front door had a glass door um, that you could see into the house. And so as I, I get out of the car and I start walking up our sidewalk, my daughter sees me coming up, and she cries out, Uh, She calls me Papa. She cries out, Papa. And then she starts going to the door, and she realizes the door's shut, and she's not yet at the age where she can open the door. So she's, the door's shut, and so she just pounded on the door out of anger because she could not get to me. And I think that, like, that pounding on the door is the crying out. In that, like, we don't just want to know God through the Spirit. Like, we want no barrier between us and him, and the Spirit opens that door so that we don't just experience God as God, but we actually experience God as a Father we want to be near. The Spirit makes us cry out, Abba, Father. And that's really important, because some of us in here, when we heard the word Father, we have some really complicated stories attached to that word, or to the person who embodied that in your life. Some troubling stories, some traumatic stories. So that's one problem. But the other problem, how many of us, when we think of God, like the immediate response is, oh yes, God is, is a good father who wants to love and pour into me. Versus God is this cosmic being that might strike me at any point if I don't live the way he wants me to. And what Paul's saying the Spirit does is, is to help us to cry out, Abba, Father, to experience God as Father. I love the way uh, Michael Reeves puts this in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He talks about this is, this is what a life without the Spirit doing that work in your life looks like. He says, instead of a life bursting with love, joy, and fellowship, all you will be left with is the watery gruel of religion. Instead of a loving Father, a distant potentate. Instead of fellowship, contract. No security in the beloved Son, no heart change, no joy in God could that spring bring. All right, without the Spirit's work in our life, we will view God as, as grueling religion, as a, as a contract, as a distant potentate, a distant authority figure in our lives, and that will not bring any joy into our life. Michael Reeves says. And so Paul says, the Spirit enables us to behold the glory of God, this God who is your Father, who has given you His Son, and has has sent you the Spirit to live into that reality as the core part of your existence. To cry out, Abba, Father. And Paul says that changes us. It transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You already bear God's glory because you're made in his image. But then the Spirit enables you to then become transformed into another glory, which is being like Jesus, obeying his commands, embodying a life 
that takes up the way of Jesus. So that's what the Spirit does. It enables us to behold the glory of God. Okay, that's great. How does that change us? Um, And there was a a psychology uh, experiment done uh, by a psychologist named Edward uh, Tronick, which honestly should probably never have happened. Uh, But the, the experiment was they got a parent and a child into the room and initially interacting with one another, but then they told the parent, we want you to not react to anything the child does. So the experiment was called still face. And you can go watch these videos on YouTube. They're incredibly disturbing. Right, so kids playing, then they go to start to engage their parent, and the parent doesn't respond. Just still face at the child. And within moments, you see the child getting angry, frustrated, dysregulated, and collapsing into stress. It does not take long. And the child just melts down. Only because the parent is not giving facial recognition to the child. Like in a couple of moments, take the facial recognition away from your child. It loses their mind. That's what the experiment showed, which is also why they should never have done it. That was incredibly disturbing. But what I want to say is, as human beings, we've been living without the gaze of our Father for centuries. And we as human beings are angry and frustrated, dysregulated, and collapsing in distress. So listen again to what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit, verse 17, uh, with the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the God, looking at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul paints this image where there's nothing covering our face and we're beholding the glory of, the, of God and the Spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, because we experience God coming back to us as a Father whose gaze of love is on us. The Spirit enables us to gaze back at the Father's face and to see Him looking back at us and live in that presence. That changes us. Just like a parent just looking at a child and giving them facial recognition gives them a sense of security and safety in the world. On a cosmic spiritual level, when we live in that experience of the Father, we also live a changed life of coherence and faith and power. But one of the reasons why this has been a bit of a difficult series for me to preach is is working between grace and works. And I've had some people... Like, we've talked about this outside of Sunday morning. And that there's, the church tends to sometimes get stuck in one of two camps in unhealthy ways. Camp one is, is just all grace, which grace is obviously good. But maybe when I said earlier that there's not a single thing that Jesus said that you cannot do, you actually tensed up a little bit. Because that works. What about grace? Because all of us know We are not doing everything Jesus has told us to do. And so what about grace in the midst of that? And and what I want to say is, is, well, yeah, we'll speak to that in a second. But sometimes grace can just cause us to lower our expectations of obedience. Instead of having the expectation that, well, okay, if I have the Spirit and I'm beholding the glory of the Lord, and that's changing me, like there's nothing I, I cannot do in the power of the Spirit. There's nothing Jesus said I cannot do. And grace doesn't lessen those expectations to us. 
But the other camp that we can sometimes get stuck in is the, the works camp, which is when I say there's not a single thing Jesus said that you cannot do. It's like, yes, and shame me because I'm not doing it. Make me feel bad and still fear in me. Let me shame other people who are not obeying the teachings of Jesus. And a lot of sermons come out, okay, you're not obeying Jesus. Well, you better start right now. Stop what you're doing and start doing the right things. I like, well, that's not what Paul's saying either. A spirit-led life actually deepens in how these two things work together. That on the one hand, I'm empowered by the Spirit, gazing at the glory of the Father, beholding his glory, which means there's nothing Jesus said that I can't do empowered by the Spirit. I'm not on my own. I should fully expect that one year from now I live a more obedient life to Jesus than I do today. Because I'm not on my own. I'm empowered by the Spirit who brings me into the presence of the Father. And if my thought instead is, well, it doesn't really matter if I obey or not, that's not a life lived in the presence of God. So on the one hand, I'm empowered by the Spirit. I expect to obey the commands of Jesus. But, but secondly, what leads to obedience is not like my own works and efforts, but because I'm beholding the face of and glory of my Father. And I could never earn that. Right? It's like, I can't go to God and be like, hey man, I've done quiet time seven days in a row, so I deserve to come in the glory this morning. Right? It's like, okay, the God of the universe is not impressed by a 20-minute quiet time seven days in a row. Like, he's just not. But he'll let you in, your pres- in his presence anyway, even if you haven't done it for seven years. Because he wants you into his presence. I can't earn that. You can't earn that. And so the more deeply you behold the glory of God, the easier it is to obey and do what Jesus said to do. And Charles Spurgeon spoke to this well. He said, It's ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It's what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. My joy, my hope is not in my doing, not in my praying, not in my living or accomplishments. My joy is to looking to Jesus, is to, as Paul writes, beholding the glory of God. And that leads into me a life of joyful obedience. So that's how the Spirit changes us, as we, we behold the glory of God, and that creates in us the safety by which to live out a faithful life. But, okay, what does that look like on the ground? What's, what does a Spirit-led life look like? And I want to by end by pointing out what I... What I think are probably the three most common postures of the most spirit-led people I know. Three postures of the spirit-led life. First is serve. When Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, having the spiritual gifts, he says this at the beginning of that teaching, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It says, to each, to all Christians, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Translation, you have the Spirit for other people, to serve them. 
And so too often, I think, when we think about spiritual gifts, our primary lens is, well, what do I like to do? And if I like to do it, that must mean the Spirit wants me to do it. Paul's actually giving the reverse definition. He's saying, no, a Spirit-led life is, how do other people experience the presence of God through my life? And I want to do that thing, and a lot of it, and as often as I can. It's why everyone here has the spiritual gift of changing diapers. Because to care like physically for another human being is, is to show them this world is safe. I'm here for you. Right? Or for a parent to have someone care for my kids well. Uh, it draws me into the presence of God. It gives me space to breathe. And too often I think we think of spiritual gifts as self-centered practices. I want to do this thing. And instead, it should be, are other people being drawn to the presence of God through what I'm doing? Right? Because if you and I have had the experience of, of crying out, Abba, Father, then you should have the burden that other people would have that experience. And whatever you can do to help other people have that experience, that's your spiritual gift. And you should want to serve people in that way so that they can live that incredibly good life of beholding the Father crying out, Abba, Father, and whatever I can do to that end, I will serve another person to make that happen. So service, that's a spirit-led life. You want to grow in the spirit? Serve somebody. Second is, is listen. Um, I love, uh, I just finished a little book that was really good, and the title says it all. The title of the book was why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? The title kind of gives it away. And and the the author starts, his name is Larry Hurtado, starts by just showing, like, there was no advantage to becoming a Christian at all in the first three centuries. If you became a Christian, here's what you could have expected in the first three centuries. First, you probably would lose your job. Because if you were in any kind of economic guild, you were expected at some point to offer sacrifices and worship to the Roman gods, and you couldn't as a Christian. So you probably lost your job. Secondly, you were under constant physical threat to your life. That while uh, widespread persecution of Christians was rare, the reality was any time a local official decided he wanted to persecute Christians, they did. So at any moment... A local official could say, I want to start uh, killing or beating Christians, and they would do it. So you lived under constant physical threat. And thirdly, you, you were likely to be estranged from your family, that unless your whole family converted with you, which was rare, you were the only member of your family now a Christian, and they would put enormous pressure on you to renounce your conversion, or uh, to, um, to, they would kick you out of the family, estrange you. So Tato just goes through the history. He's like, there was no like advantage to becoming a Christian. And yet, a lot of people became Christians. So why on earth did that happen? And he gives a lot of answers. Uh, He actually only gives a couple answers to that. But the one I found most compelling, I'm going to use my own words to this, but they heard from someone. Like they had an encounter with the Spirit and their life was radically altered. And then people in Rome saw that and had to take seriously what they were seeing. 
Right? This person should not be a Christian. There's no advantage. And yet here they are deeply committed to the faith. What happens? Well, they heard from someone. And Paul, I think, illustrates this really well in Philippians 3 when he basically goes through all of his accomplishments pre-Christianity. And he basically says, listen, I was born into the right tribe of Judaism. I had an incredible education. I had an incredible ministry career. I was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And now I want you to know it's all garbage compared to knowing Christ. And what did knowing Christ get Paul? Well, he he got shipwrecked. He got beaten. He got stoned. His life was threatened. The worst thing on the list for me is someone terrified of snake. He got bit by a snake for being a pastor, Christian, like this is just like, like cherry on top, right? And yet Paul says, all of the, like the good life when I had it and I was religiously respected and well-known, it was all garbage because then I heard from Jesus. And now that's the only thing I want to hear. That's the only thing that matters to me. And so Hurtado says, there were just so many stories of that that people in Rome had to take it seriously. And I would just ask, would non-Christians say that about us? That per- Tim heard from somebody. Something intervened in his life because it's radically different than what we would expect. They live an altered life. They've heard from the Spirit. That we live in a day when we do a lot of talking. And I recognize I'm chief hypocrite in this moment because my primary vocation is to speak to people for 35 minutes a week. So just lean into my hypocrisy for a moment. But there's just this vibe in our culture is, if I think it, I must say it. And a spirit-led life listens. Listens to God in prayer. The most spirit-led people I've ever encountered, if you sit down to pray with them, They do more listening than talking because they want to know, God, what's your agenda for my life, for my future? I'm not going to try to give it to you and have you bless what I want. I want to hear from you. I'm listening. They listen in conversation. The most spirit-led people I've ever encountered when I'm sitting across from the table from them, they they don't need to say much because it's almost like the father's the third person in our conversation. And before they speak, they want to make sure they're representing the father well. And think of even how Paul describes the Spirit's work in our life. It's to behold the glory of God. Like, just imagine, like, you're doing that. You're beholding the glory of God. Like, how many of us imagine beholding the glory of God and just being like, wow, God, I have so much to say right now about your glory. Just let me talk for a while. I'd like to say so. No, we silence, listening, right? A Spirit-led life listens. And then third and, and finally, spirit-led life, the posture of a spirit-led life is one of expectation. Spirit-led people expect the power of God to be at work in their life. So I want to ask you, where do we get our power from as a church? And not the right answer, but I mean like our practical answer. I need power, so here's where I'm going to go get it from. Where do we get our power from? Can I just say, as someone who just like listens uh, quite a bit to the church today, where I, how I would answer that question. Maybe you agree, maybe you won't. But I think Christians today think we will have power when the person we want occupies an office shaped like an oval in a house that is white in a city called Washington. 
And I described it that way because it's ridiculous. <laughs> a little office that one day won't exist. We will have access to power when the people we like outnumber the people we don't like in Congress. We will have power when it's easy to be a Christian in our culture and everyone agrees with our vision of life. We will have power when I have that exact right argument that arguments someone into the ground and they become a Christian too, but I argue them into the truth. But where do the apostles get their power from? They shut themselves in a room, lock the door because they're probably afraid. And Jesus said, just wait. You got, don't do anything. <laughs> just, just wait. And they did that. And the Spirit arrived, and 3,000 people were converted in a moment. Where do we get our power from? And you, you read the early church. Man, they expected the power of God to be at work, even though they were a despised cultural minority for whom there was no good reason to become a Christian other than they had been granted access to behold the glory of God, and they did. And so they walked around, despite persecution, despite rejection, with expectation of power. And I love the way Alan Kreider writes this in The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It says, During the early centuries, the Christians gave the impression of being confidently powerful. Why? In part because they believed that the struggles they were involved in were above all spiritual. They saw themselves as fighting not primarily against humans or institutions, but against spiritual forces that were hostile to them and that impeded human flourishing. They saw their enemies as demons, personified spiritual forces that had considerable but limited power. The demons did have power. Their role in engineering the crucifixion of Jesus was evidence of this. But the believers confessed that on the cross, Jesus had exposed the true nature of the demonic powers and vanquished them. And not only that, he also, through the Holy Spirit, had unleashed unimaginable spiritual power for good into the world. The Christians claim they had access to that power. I mean, do you believe that? That Jesus, through his crucifixion, actually exposed everything evil and that claims power in this world and overcame it. And now, through leashing the Spirit into the world, has unleashed unimaginable spiritual power for good. And you and I have access to that power. Both to change in our own lives. There's not anything Jesus said you can't do. Because the Spirit has been unleashed into your life. But more than that, there's not a single thing as a church that we don't have the power to do. Should we seek the Spirit? Because Jesus has defeated everything evil that exists. So we don't live in fear. We don't live afraid. We don't live concerned because we have expectation that we have access to a power of unimaginable spiritual good unleashed in the world. And I'll end by telling a story, one of my favorites of Jesus where he comes into, uh, on the way to Samaria, and they stop at a town, and Jesus stops at a well, where there's a woman there by herself. And the reason she's at the well by herself at this time of day is she does not like religious people. No doubt, through her many divorces and her uh, difficult life, she had faced extreme judgment and condescension from religious people in her community, so she's there alone, and the last thing she wants is for a religious person to start talking to her. The last thing she probably wants is for a religious teacher like Jesus to start talking to her. Well, Jesus starts talking to her. 
And I'm not, we don't need to go, you know, you, some of you know the story. I'm just, I want to get to the end. At the end of that conversation, this religious cynic, away from her community, becomes the first evangelist in the Gospels. One conversation. Because Jesus was filled with the Spirit and was unleashing unimaginable spiritual power for good in the world. Do you have that expectation that today you might talk to someone and in one conversation, should you be led by the Spirit, turn a cynic into evangelist? You have that expectation, that hopefulness. Or maybe that's too high. Do you just expect that all the things Jesus said you can do with your life, be free of anger, the love of money, bitterness, hatred for your enemies, like you can become that person? There is not a single thing that Jesus said that you cannot do. There's not a single thing you can do on your own, but you're not on your own. Let's pray. Father, what good news that we are not on our own. So I pray that that message would just land in our hearts now. We are, we are loved by you, our Father, through your sending of the Son, your Son Jesus, and now through the empowerment of your Spirit, we can experience that. So Father, as we prepare to take communion and sing, I, I just pray that we would experience that. Our hearts would cry out, Abba, Father, we would behold your glory, the glory that Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, that we might be changed, that we might listen and obey everything he's told us to do. Help us to that end, I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, uh, we are going to say communion now as a community together. Um, if your faith is in Jesus, this meal is, is for you. We'll have uh, four stations up front, one in the balcony. Uh, come in groups of, of five to seven. If you can, kind of like form a little, a little half circle around the person serving you. This is a little bit more intimate. Um, if, if there's already six people in the circle, just hold on, wait. Uh, if it gets too large, it can be tough to manage. It's okay, we can take our time um, at this. But, but you'll come, you'll take the bread, you'll dip it into the juice, then you'll eat it together at the instruction of those who are serving you. If you're not yet a Christian, uh, this meal's not yet for you. Uh, I'll be in the hallway after service. I'd love to talk to you about what it would mean to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, and to come and receive uh, his table after service. But for now, we believe God's seeking you, and so we'd invite you to ask God to show himself um, to you. We believe he will. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.